All right. Hey, we're back. Obi-Gain Owino is back. Sorry for the delay in getting this next one out. I just finished a whole bunch of content for the Born Free Method, which is going to be live in February. At the time of this recording, this is January 1st, 2024. So February 2024, a bunch of new content is coming to the Born Free Method. And part of what we're going to be talking about today, early pregnancy loss, which is practice bulletin number 200 from our dear ACOG friends. This was published back in 2018, November 2018. And it gets a little bit into miscarriage, you know, pregnancy loss, uh, kind of trying to sort out what exactly caused this. And um, a lot of this content went into the Born Free Method. So it seemed like a, an appropriate way to jump back in here to our regular recordings um, of these updated practice bulletins. And if, if you're, you're probably privy to the reality that, that a lot of these guidelines don't get updated regularly. We know that it takes you know, years to even decades for new clinical insights from the data to be incorporated into our practice. And generally, OBGYNs change their practice in, in this case, in gynecology, once ACOG has sufficient evidence or their panel of experts, you know, the consensus has um, accepted that perhaps we now need to make new recommendations. But the last time that this early pregnancy loss practice bulletin was updated was November 2018. So should just tell you something. Um, so let's get into it. The, this episode is um, <laughs> best paired with the 2015 Vranek Pro Corde Plantaze. I'm probably saying that French and it shouldn't be because it is a Slavic language and that's just the best I can do. <laughs> like with every episode, we have five pearls. Number one, early pregnancy loss occurs in 10% of all recognized pregnancies. I feel like that number is probably higher now overall because I think our population has gotten um, less healthy and um, is certainly older even in the past five, six years since this was published. But we'll just stick with that number. I think it's probably closer to 15%. But about half of uh, early pregnancy losses can be attributed to chromosomal abnormalities. The second pearl, misoprostol, 800 micrograms given vaginally with a second dose in 48 hours if needed, has an 85% chance of resolving retained products of conception associated with early pregnancy loss. And if you add mifepristone, 200 milligrams, 24 hours prior to the misoprostol, that increases that rate. Um, mifepristone is one of those medications that is becoming increasingly challenging for people like me to access because of our wacky abortion, controversial, whatever conversation in our country. Number three, surgical management of early pregnancy loss, that is a suction DNC, is 99% effective at resolving the, uh, the miscarriage. Give doxycycline beforehand if you're a practitioner. Just trust me on that. Number four, risks of expectant medical and surgical management for early pregnancy loss are equal across the board and quite low, less than 2% chance of, of um, fail, uh, of, 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 of something terrible happening. And of course, we're going to get into that. And number five, management of early pregnancy loss requires a shared medical decision-making process. Risks and benefits should be elaborated for all three of those options. All right, so let's get into some of the epidemiology. Early, early pregnancy loss, miscarriage, spontaneous abortion are synonymous. All of these terms really mean the same thing. You, you got a positive pregnancy test. It didn't go the distance. Generally, it stopped. Um, 
within the first trimester, about 80% of miscarriages occur in the first trimester. This includes the things like a chemical pregnancy, as we call it, or a blighted ovum. ovum. Um, there are some risk factors that can increase the likelihood of this happening. Advanced maternal age, history of prior early pregnancy loss are the two most, um, the two most uh, let's say, highest, uh, most closely associated risk factors, we'll say. As I mentioned, 10% of all recognized pregnancies, um, it's around 15%, I'd say, between 20 and 30 years, 40% at age 40, and 80% chance of spontaneous early pregnancy loss at age 45. And um, about 50% of the time, it's due to a chromosomal abnormality, not like trisomy 21 Down syndrome, which generally, as you know, results in a live pregnancy. We're talking other aneuploidies and, and abnormalities within the genetic material of the embryo itself. All right, so how do we diagnose this? Well, there are several things that should make you suspicious and um, others are pretty diagnostic. So if you have bleeding or cramping, um, those are very nonspecific. They can be seen in molar pregnancies, ectopic pregnancies, even a normal intrauterine pregnancy, or, of course, in our spontaneous um, abortions, these early losses. What you need to do is a, a thorough history. You need to get an ultrasound, and it can, can be helpful to get a serum, um, beta-HCG, which stands for human chorionic gonadotropin. The circumstances of this work, you know, taking into account the circumstances of the bleeding and the cramping are really important. If a viable, and really the findings on any of this workup, if a viable IUP is documented at eight weeks, but nothing is then seen within the intrauterine cavity at 12 weeks, then your diagnosis is pretty straightforward. Um, but this is a little bit harder if it's the first time that you're evaluating the patient. So let's say you do an ultrasound and you see, hey, there is a, a, um, a little embryo in there, but there's no heartbeat. Hmm. That's diagnostic of pregnancy failure. There's an embryo with no heartbeat, right? But what if you have a, a crown rump length of less than seven millimeters um, and there's no heartbeat? Well, maybe we need to wait until it gets over seven millimeters and then we can actually diagnose it. So it's diagnostic over seven millimeters, but less than seven millimeters, you might just need to repeat the ultrasound. And I recommend waiting one to two weeks. The same can be said for other measurements that can be seen on early um, pregnancy ultrasound, like mean sac diameter. Um, let's say you don't see an embryo, but you see a yolk sac. There's all of these different scenarios. There is a great table that is provided in the practice guidelines that um, I've included in the show notes, which you can get at Patreon, uh, the Patreon account, which is linked in the podcast description. So the reason that I don't put too much emphasis on the growth rate of the gestational sac or even the embryo is because they're historically quite inaccurate at predicting the likelihood of pregnancy loss. So just because you don't see the heartbeat doesn't mean it won't have a heartbeat. I've been surprised so many times. So you have to just be optimistic here and your counseling needs to reflect the uncertainty. Um, what I will say is that if there is a gestational sac present, that's like a, a collection of fluid in the uterus, and there's no yolk sac or embryo, and then you repeat the ultrasound one to two weeks later, and there's still nothing there, then that's usually diagnostic of pregnancy loss. I'm going to say upwards of 99% chance. So in addition to what's included in that table, um, which are like suspicions, you know, suspicious findings that might suggest that this pregnancy is not going to make it, a low fetal heart rate of less than 100 beats per minute at five to seven weeks. Um, you know, 
it's a suspicion, you know, the baby's dorsal vagal nervous system develops first. So you do expect to see a, um, a higher heart rate than 100 beats per minute. And, um, but, you know, of course, if you don't, then perhaps that's another thing you can add into your decision making. Subchorionic hemorrhage um, or hematoma is also associated with early pregnancy loss. So you want to have a baby whose heart rate is kind of wacky. Um, can be very, very high early in pregnancy. And um, if there's a little bit of bleeding between the placenta and the uterus, then that is also a, a sign that maybe this isn't going to make it, but it is not diagnostic. It is not time to start talking about management, which we're going to get into right now. Oh, and one final thing about this heart rate business, which is that early, 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 like we're talking before 10 weeks, you still have a sort of a constituting of the electrical activity of this early cardiovascular system. Um, frankly, what we're picking up with that Doppler is not like a heart beating. It's not a, a heart contracting and expanding, contracting and expanding. It, it is more of a pickup on this electrical activity that is beginning to develop and generate. So um, this dorsal vagal sympathetic ventral vagal is more of a cascade that you see developing after that 10 week mark really into the early second trimester. So it is pretty common if you were to put a color Doppler, which I don't really recommend, um, frankly, because it, you know, increases, um, uh, what am I trying to say here? When you blast anything with high frequency uh, radio waves, you're going to get an increase in heat and that can potentially disrupt embryogenesis. So when we do that, we see this high heart rate it is not um, the same sort of heart rate, so to speak, as we see later in pregnancy when you're being monitored in labor. I just wanted to throw that in there. Okay, when we talk about management, we have to consider that everybody's going to have a, a slightly different value system when it comes to you know what to do when we diagnose a pregnancy that is inevitably going to end up in failure or that has already shown us that it's not you know it's not going to go um, past the first trimester, let's say. So. It's going to be highly dependent. Your, your counseling and your management is going to be highly dependent on the patient's desire for the pregnancy, that her unwillingness or willingness to forgo intervention until the pregnancy um, location and viability is 100% clear and the consequences of delaying intervention. That's really the crux of your counseling. So three categories of intervention should be presented once a diagnosis is made. Once a diagnosis is made. So saying, oh, you know, I don't think this is going to make it. We should do a DNC is not okay. <laughs> This might be highly desired. We have to be far more sensitive about this. So expectant management versus medical management versus surgical management is, is really the brunt of this management conversation. As I've already mentioned, there's no differences in long-term outcomes between these three approaches. It really just depends on what their values are. You are not the captain of the ship. It's your job to provide risks, benefits, alternatives, and then support them in that decision. So expectant management, this means, this is the first of our three, this means no intervention. So the pro here is no medication or surgery is required and 80% are gonna resolve expectantly within eight weeks on its own. The downside is you, you know, she can expect bleeding, cramping, possibly passage of fetal tissue, which can be very traumatic. And that really depends on the predicted gestational age. She may still require medical or surgical management in the event of failure, right? Like we, we this hasn't been resolved, so we may need to now do you know medication or surgery, and that waiting period can be really, really hard for people. So you just have to bear that in mind. It's very, very difficult to predict the timeline, but I generally say within eight weeks, you should see resolution. It's highly varied. Could be a couple days, could be a couple months. 
So when we diagnose a second trimester loss, the management is going to be slightly different. What we're talking about here is first trimester losses. If you wait until the second trimester, excessive bleeding, we have to worry about septic abortion, far more so than the first trimester. Um, expectant management is far more likely to work in symptomatic women and women in women who have an incomplete loss versus a missed or an embryonic pregnancy failure. The missed pregnancy failure is sort of like, I got a pregnancy test, I'm feeling pregnant, I'm feeling pregnant, suddenly something feels off. You go in and get an ultrasound and there's an embryo with no heartbeat, but you've had no bleeding, no cramping, nothing like that. And an anembryotic pregnancy failure is what we would call the blighted ovum, the um, chemical pregnancy, etc. So no embryo has developed. When either of those two scenarios arises, it's much less likely that your body's going to suddenly kick into um, management mode. A follow-up ultrasound is not required for this, but if it's performed, um, you really don't need to do anything more. Um, you don't need to necessarily do medication or surgery unless you just you're still seeing a collection of fluid, a gestational sac, or you know, heaven forbid. A, uh, still there's some embryonic tissue or yolk sac you know, visible in there. All right, medical management. This is the prostaglandins with or without progesterone receptor antagonists. The latter is also known as mifepristone, which is the medication I mentioned earlier that is hard to get in many states because of um, concerns around uh, state-led value systems directing how women you know, treat their bodies. Let's just leave it at that. The pro of medical management is it's doing something versus waiting it out without assuming the surgical risks. Um, and these medicines can take effect in just a few hours. The con is really the same for expectant management. You still may need to go for surgery in the event of failure, and um, it still is somewhat often diffi difficult to predict timeline or even likelihood of success, although um, about... 70% chance, there's a 70% chance of just a single dose of vaginal progesterone, 800 micrograms doing the job, 85% if a second dose is given 48 hours later, and even better if we add that mifepristone, 200 milligrams orally, um, about 24 hours before the vaginal misoprostol is combined. When you combine these, the, the likelihood um, of you successfully passing all the tissue and um, not needing any uterine aspiration or DNC is um, is decreased, and you're not you're not assuming any increased risk of adverse events. So, mifepristone to misoprostol is a highly effective combination. There is no data to suggest that medical management is better than expectant management for incomplete loss. That is really, really important. So if you have cramping, if you have bleeding, if part of the pregnancy has passed, like let's say there's a bunch of junk in the uterus, but then there, there used to be an embryo and the embryo has passed, right? The likelihood of this working is, um, is just about the same as expectant management, which is why we should offer that. We should say, hey, we don't have to do anything here. It's not even like expert consensus. This is our expert consensus guidelines, right? And they're saying it's, there's no difference based on the data. Um, when I do this, I only have people come in for a follow-up ultrasound or serial serum beta-HCG levels, um, or if they have symptoms, um, because I might be concerned of, let's say, a molar pregnancy or uh, whatever. You know, I, I, I want to make sure if the serum beta-HCG beta levels, for example, were super, super high, 
then I might want to track those down to make sure that we weren't dealing with a molar pregnancy. And of course, if a person has a DNC, you can you can get that to the path lab to look for molar pregnancy, but not in the home um, if you did either expectant or medical management. If you need any um, sort of reminder of the medical management protocols, box one, uh, which was in the practice bulletin, I've included that in the show notes as well. Surgical management comes with the tremendous upside of immediately taking care of the problem. You're going to immediately achieve resolution, complete resolution of early pregnancy loss in 99% of the cases. It can be performed in the hospital or the office setting using, uh, in the office, it's, it's, it would be done with something called a manual vacuum aspirator, which is like a big plastic tube with a plunger on it. Um, you don't even have to use local anesthetic necessarily or sedation, but some, many women may, um, may prefer that. So you just have to really you know, suss out where would this be best done. And if going into an operating room and being you know, under sedation is the way to, that you want to do it, then you know, to each their own. The downside, of course, is that there are surgical risks with any, with any procedure like uterine perforation, um, pain, infection. These risks are low, but they are there. And, um, you know, frankly, the only scenario in which I would not be farting around with expectant versus medical management, of course, everybody, you know, you are the captain of your own ship if you have an early pregnancy loss. But if you're hemorrhaging, then going towards a dilation and curatage, a suction DNC, is, um, is probably the best option because you can very, very quickly um, exsanguinate from hemorrhaging due to uh, these pregnancy losses. And this, of course, would be in the setting of an incomplete um, loss or even a complete loss, but you're just still bleeding. Maybe there's a couple little shards of membrane or something that are preventing you from stopping the bleeding. Um, if a person is a high-risk surgical candidate, like let's say they have you know significant heart disease or lung disease or whatever else, um, it may actually be better that they have expectant or medical management. Of course, outside of the, the setting of hemorrhage, of course. Um, so you can see how this is far more complicated than do you, do you clean out the uterus or do you not, right? If you are gonna go for a DNC, using a suction um, procedure as a part of that is far better than using just a sharp curette uh, alone. And um, Rates of infection or hemorrhage sufficiently significant to warrant hospitalization, hospitalization are equal across all three management options, um, less than 2% of all accounts. <clears throat> Though um, many experts will recommend giving a dose of doxycycline 200 milligrams IV at the time of a procedure, like the suction DNC or an MVA under a decreased risk of intrauterine infection. I only use the doxycycline when I'm doing a suction DNC. Just leave it at that. Um, doing it's in the office versus in the operating room is far cheaper. So if a person is uninsured, that may also play into the, the different management options and how you counsel. All right, some rapid fire questions that often come up. How long should my patient wait after miscarriage before having intercourse? There's really no data, so as long as she wants. Um, <clears throat> that means that there's you know, probably no increased risk of infection if she doesn't want to wait around, but really we're lacking any quality data. Is it safe to place an IUD at time of suction DNC? Yes. And expulsion rates are comparable to patients receiving IUDs outside of, of miscarriage. So nothing to be worried about there. Do I have to worry about alloimmunization? This is when your body, we're specifically talking um, for the most part about RH alloimmunization, meaning your baby or the this early uh, uh, embryo was developing RH factor, let's say, uh, a type 
um, a positive blood type and then you miscarried, is there a possibility that your immune system, the, the, the woman who was pregnant, her immune system would be exposed to this Rh factor on those early fetal blood cells and um, sufficiently to generate an, uh, an immune reaction to a future Rh positive baby in a future pregnancy. And in early pregnancy loss, especially less than 10 weeks, the risk is probably very low, but I do offer to patients who are Rh negative. Um, if you get the Clyhauer betkey testing, that can be informative to see how much blood did pass over to the mother. It doesn't require very much. And if you are gonna give Rogam, which is what you would do in this case, 50 micrograms probably will do the trick, but I you know, always defer to the KB um, test if you have any doubts as to how much Rogam to give. Of course, nowadays Rogam is made from, it always has been made from whole blood, but nowadays post the COVID and all the controversy around the vaccine and spike protein went up, people are concerned about getting, receiving a whole blood product from another person um, because they're concerned about what, you know, sort of immune response or what was in the vaccines and all that. So these conversations are getting far more complicated since I was in residency anyways. Should I do chromosomal analysis on the products of conception? It really depends. After the first spontaneous abortion, it's really not indicated. After the second, I think it should be offered, and ACOG agrees. Um, remember, 50% of pregnancies are lost due to chromosomal um, abnormalities, and there's nothing you would have been able to do anyways. Would it be helpful to have it after one, given that you know 10 to 15% of, of pregnancies end in miscarriage or end in a chemical pregnancy? Um, what are you going to do with that information? That's what I always ask about any intervention or test or screen or whatever. What are we going to do with the information? How about testing for antiphospholipid syndrome? You can test for, it's, it's indicated to test for APLS in the event of three losses at less than 10 weeks or more than one loss at greater than 10 weeks. So again, to each their own, I usually will do that screen after one because I do a lot of functional labs and my clients are generally more willing to do more lab work in order to investigate upstream maybe what had you know, caused this. <clears throat> this next one's a bigger topic, um, and it's something that has come up quite a bit in the midwife collaborator program that I have. If you want more information, go to belovedholistics.com. I support midwives around the country as their collaborative physicians so they can do what they do best. But this question around, um, you know, I had a miscarriage. Should I be on progesterone and all that? Like, there's so much stuff that we can talk about here. But let's just work through some of these, the, the, the primary things that come up in my practice. So... There's unfortunately not a lot that can be done to prevent early pregnancy loss in a future pregnancy after you've had one. Aspirin, uterine relaxants, HCG supplementation have not been found to be helpful. Um, likewise, vaginal IM or oral progesterone hasn't been found to be helpful. There was a 2008 Cochrane interview, unless they have already experienced three or more losses. The jury is still out. So is so let's, let's kind of dig into the progesterone um, a little bit. There's a lot of conversation and discussion um, around this topic. It's actually a little controversial. There, there are three reasons for which some women are recommended progesterone supplementation in early pregnancy. History of preterm birth. We um, covered this in Practice Bulletin 234 earlier in the podcast, prediction and prevention of spontaneous preterm birth. The second is bleeding or pain in pregnancy. Um, and the third is low progesterone documented during your fertility workup or on labs that were drawn after you found out you were pregnant. So we're not going to talk about preterm birth. See the other um, summary I did of that one for that one. Bleeding or pain in current pregnancy. There is insufficient evidence to support the use of progesterone in early pregnancy simply due to bleeding or pain or both. Um, 
what you would be giving is 400 milligrams vag vaginally twice daily. The NICE guidelines from the UK do support this practice for, quote, threatened miscarriage, but this is not evidence-based. It's a consensus guideline, which always means that we don't really have enough evidence to guide this entirely. The NICE guidelines were um, derived from a meta-analysis of the available literature, and the study with the largest weight on these guidelines was the PRISM trial. I've linked both the, the, the Cochrane Review I just mentioned, the NICE guidelines, and the PRISM trial here. Um, in this PRISM trial, it looked at the benefits of synthetic progesterone versus placebo in over 4,000 women in 48 hospitals in the UK. And it was a large trial, but it still left a lot of questions around duration of treatment. And one of the critics of this trial, W.C. Duncan, I've linked his critique in the show notes as well, he said, it is possible that progesterone supplementation may not have any effects after the luteal placental shift at nine weeks gestation. In threatened miscarriage, it is likely that there are no ongoing effects beyond 12 weeks of gestation when progesterone support has switched to the placenta. We want to reconsider the guidance on continuing pharmacologic progesterone treatment until 16 completed weeks of pregnancy. So um, what he's saying here is, do we go until 12 weeks or do we go until 16 weeks? And he's pointing out correctly that you have a switch from corpus luteal um, progesterone sub, uh, uh, production being predominant to placental progesterone production around the 12-week mark. So, um, and really that, that, sh that, that shift doesn't happen at the 12-week mark. It probably starts at the nine-week mark and then completes around the 12-week mark. But all of the NICE guidelines and many other, you know, uh, agencies have recommended we do this until 16 weeks, sometimes until like 34 weeks, um, even for this purpose. So people are kind of confusing the role of progesterone supplementation, what it's actually meant to do. And Duncan's um, observation here is that, listen, the corpus luteum is the problem here. If we have a luteal phase defect, which we'll you know talk about in a second, if the pregnancy gets to the 12, <clears throat> the nine to 12 week mark and beyond, we have the placenta, which is growing and pumping out progesterone. So it's not reflected in those early fertility labs. It just, it's a little bit of a logical issue here. So that's that. Bleeding or pain in current pregnancy are not necessarily gonna benefit from progesterone. Maybe until nine to 12 weeks, but even that is a little, a little questionable. The third reason that people um, are recommended progesterone supplementation is these low labs, right? So low progesterone during your luteal phase, which is this luteal phase defect, you can see this on Dutch tests, you can see this if you do get serial um, progesterone, um, serum progesterone throughout your, you know, a couple cycles, we can see what your progesterone levels are like after ovulation, before menstruation. Um, these women may benefit from vaginal progesterone, 200 milligrams every night until 16 weeks, maybe, right? Again, <laughs> Duncan's point should be taken, but this is ACOG. This is, this is our, our, our big bodies that are recommending these things and a lot of big studies that are recommending these things. So to each their own here. There was one study of 922 women, quote, serum progesterone concentration increased linearly with gestational age from five to 13 weeks in women with normal pregnancies. Women with spontaneous miscarriage showed a marginal and non-significant increase in serum progesterone. This study highlights the pivotal role of progesterone in supporting an early pregnancy with lower serum progesterone associated with threatened miscarriage and a subsequent complete miscarriage at 16 weeks gestation. That's Ku et al. 2018. I've linked it in the show notes. So you can see that there are a variety of, quote, experts that are disagreeing as to whether this is beneficial, for how long is it going to be beneficial, for um, what dose do we use. All of this is still up in the air. And what Ku et al. is getting at here is not really 
the luteal phase defect. They're actually saying, hey, for maybe for somebody who has a luteal phase defect, they also have low progesterone um, being produced by the placenta because we're actually we're looking at past the nine to 12 week mark. There was a giant, um, there's this graphic that circulates. It's from naprotechnology.com. Napro practitioners have a kind of a different way of looking at this whole process. Um, some people love them. I'm sort of ambivalent. But this graphic is from the Pope Paul VI Institute, a very Christian um, institution, which shows the upper and lower limits of normal for progesterone week by week until 40 weeks, right? And you do see a, a, see a steady climb in the progesterone um, trimester, trimester by trimester, week by week. And if a person were to fall out of that range, then we might suggest doing some um, progesterone supplementation. I've included the graphic in the show notes. But to be clear, shouldn't we also consider the downsides to progesterone? For starters, most, quote, progesterone options at the pharmacy aren't progesterone. They're a synthetic version called progestin. There's a variety of those on the market. I fully support the use of bioidentical hormones because I feel that they do less harm than synthetics, but we don't really have the ability to get into that deeply today. My concern um, is the impacts of vaginal progestins on the cervical and vaginal microbiome. Um, not to mention, you know, prometrium is one of the more common ones. That's yellow dye number five and red number six and all this like really, really nasty stuff that we know is not good for us. And now we're putting it into a young woman's body or an older woman's body who's worried about losing their pregnancy. So the issue uh, is that most of the research available to help you make this decision was conducted using these synthetic progestins and not real biologically active progesterone. So we, we have some big gaps here in the research. Some studies have shown no change to vaginal or cervical microbiomes. Others have shown that there may be a change to these microbiomes. But does that difference make, does, that, um, does the difference matter in predicting or preventing miscarriage? Who knows? If, we, if you wanna go deeper, the primary bacterial species generating the most interest around miscarriage and preterm birth are the Lactobacillus einers and Bifidobacterium longum species. Those are protective in the Gardnerella vaginalis and Mycoplasma um, gerardii are, um, are pathogenic. And there's a couple studies I've linked here for reference, but we won't go too much further into that today. I think we have a nice primer, a nice starting point for the conversation. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the OB-GYNO Wino. Um, happy New Year, and I'll see you next time right back here on your second favorite OBGYN birth, pregnancy, women's health-related podcast, next to, of course, The King, the Holistic OBGYN podcast, which is my other show. Take care, everybody. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.